95.5. This is Life Beats. Life Beats. With Sally Musa. Sally Musa. Only on Pulse 95. Pulse 95. Our smartphone is not only a source of information, but it's become an extension of our physicality and our psyche. As we look to it to understand ourselves and the world around us, we use it for validation. We use it to project back to the world ideas about who we are and how we want others to see us. While many will argue the digital world has brought us closer together than we could have ever imagined, many, including Sharjah Art Foundation's Dr. Omar Khalif, will say that we need to understand the price of this so-called connection. Khalif is the curator behind SAF's new groundbreaking exhibition, Art in the Age of Anxiety, which explores the true impact of the internet on us, on our identity and sense of self, on our privacy, and on our understanding of the world around us. It also questions the apparent sense of power that the digital world brings us with instant knowledge at our fingertips, and yet that power dissolves as we come to grapple with the addiction and anxiety induced by this very same technology. He put together this truly global exhibition featuring 60 works from a roster of over 30 international artists who have asked what it means to live in the digital age. I asked Dr. Omar how this exhibition came about. I've been particularly interested in the context of the internet since I was a little child, really, when we first got our computer in Saudi and had dial-up connection, and it became a portal into the world and a source of distribution. And I became very fascinated by the potential power for the internet to be a space where voices that had been unheard could be seen. And the reason for that was that I was in British and American schools where I was looking at history books and never reading my own history and I wanted to know more. And that became a tool or a funnel by which to access and through which to access information. So my career really took on a trajectory where I became very much enmeshed in looking at art in the context of technology more broadly from the very start. Over the last 10 years, I've organized a number of exhibitions, offered a number of books that have sought to explore the concept of how the internet really is not only changing our lives, but the way we actually see the world. So this particular exhibition came about three years ago I was co-curating Sharjah Banyal 14 and Sheikha Hur al-Qasimi had asked me to think about the possibility of doing a show about the internet in the region and to think about what specificity it would hold. At the time, I was doing a lot of thinking and there was this incident where in London, British pop star was in Selvages and tweeted that there was a bomb scare in the department store and everyone went kind of manic because this information spread very quickly across RSS feeds and parts of central London were shut down. Uh, however, it turned out that this was not true. This was not necessarily a hoax, but potentially misinformation or misunderstanding. And I started to question, have our systems and mechanisms of belief changed in the age of the internet? What do we believe and what do we instill with the authority to 
truly believe. And that began to open up the question for this show, which is how have our day-to-day -day digital devices, from our iPhone to our numerous social media platforms, affected our conscious and subconscious mind? And in a country like the UAE, where social media penetration is incredibly high, in the Gulf particularly, I can say that it is upwards of 90%. And by social media, I include WhatsApp, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and all the attendant other platforms. And that's across age groups, which is very fascinating. And I thought, well, this exhibition is very timely, but I want people to be aware that they are somehow complicit in a world that they may not necessarily be aware of, in that they are feeding machines with information about themselves that are then being funneled into algorithms and systems that sell us products, that influence our tastes, that shape our culture, the music we listen to, the clothes we buy, and so forth. And so the artists in the exhibition really try to dissect what it means to think of these technologies and their influence on our day-to-day -day lives in a very kind of critical way, but also playful way. Within the exhibition, there is scope to also have moments of laughter because some of the artists use incredible humor. Also moments of real solace and retreat because there are these very kind of quiet, elegiac, poignant moments where one is kind of left to be with a singular artwork. Throughout, there are artworks that span a variety of media, from virtual reality to augmented reality, to video, but also to sculpture. But also there is an incredible scenography that has been constructed with a collaborator of mine called Todd Reese, who's an architect who has made an environment that is literally meant to feel like it's mimicking the internet in some way. My brief to him was, I want it to feel like you're being shot down a fiber optic cable when you walk into this space. I think that we have achieved that. How did he achieve that? Speaking of fiber optics, because fiber optics, basically what that has allowed, not only did we have the internet, which has allowed this agency that many of us still struggle to understand how it works and what to do with it. So that's one thing that we need to talk about. But speed, and it kind of, when I was looking at this exhibition, I was reminded of the saying in Arabic, that the faster things go, the less time you actually have to reflect, the less time you have to actually be able to understand and dissect what's being given to you. And you're seeing that, you know, in things like WhatsApp messages, people get something and then if it resonates because of the algorithms, they just pass it on straight away. And oftentimes it's negative. And is that where the source of anxiety is coming from? Is it the speed? Is it us not understanding our agency and how powerful that is? Where is the source of the anxiety, Dr. Omar? Well, the source of the anxiety is very broad and very complicated and very specific to each person. And I will begin by saying, and I will always begin by saying that every exhibition that I make comes from a subjective place. It comes from my own point of view, 
and reflecting on the conversations that I've had with artists and theoreticians in the field, as well as the multiple publics that I serve as a custodian of art. My exhibition, Art in the Age of Anxiety, really comes from my anxiety, which was at the time of putting together this exhibition, I just had this constant churning feeling in my stomach that something was going to go wrong at any point, at any moment when my phone would ping with a notification, that it was going to be something bad. Every WhatsApp group that I had been added to was a bad thing that every RSS feed update or infinite scroll that I engaged with was gonna proliferate bad information. And it's true, especially in an age like today where we are going through what has been deemed a global pandemic, you open your Facebook feed and you can't help but feel completely paranoid, terrified, insular, in some cases like me, almost agoraphobic. And so it began from that very specific point of how does technology affect the person, the subconscious mind, and then how does that then translate to the very physicality of the human. But for each person that differs, and one of the things that you mentioned is this idea of not being able to pause. When you race too fast, you don't have room for reflection. And that is completely true. Now, we talk about many industrial revolutions and we talk about the fact that, you know, oh, the internet, those dystopian figures who talk about the internet don't realize, you know, television was the same and the printing press was the same. And I am sorry to say that although there is such a thing as Moore's law in computing, which speaks to how technology will accelerate or um, develop at twice the speed that it once did previously. I believe that technology generally has accelerated at such warp speed more than I've ever seen a washing machine, for example, accelerate in terms of model. We change our laptops much more than we change our washing machines or we change our phones much more than we change our washing machines. And because of this concept of software versus hardware, we update our software on an almost daily basis. There is always a fix to a bug that is an update. Yet we never know what that update is because we are never fully versed in the code that is coming down to our phone. And that is basically a corporation or app producer literally changing the way we see the world and asking us to re-engage with it completely. So if Facebook comes out with the new Facebook, you're going to start seeing the world in a completely different way. That is very anxiety inducing and also leaves you in a position where you're not able to reflect on are my photos archived? Are, what is my privacy now? What is this? What is X, Y, Z? And what has happened, I believe, is that not only have we moved so quickly into accepting technologies, we have also set up a context where we believe that we cannot exist without it. So I am seeing now children at the age of three with their own iPads and phones. I mean, they may be, be taken away by mommy and daddy at the end of the day, but still, this to me is kind of madness because I remember with television, I had set hours to watch it. And that was when I was at least the age of nine.
So, you know, we are accelerating in a way that we believe that technological literacy is the only way forward. And so we are letting these devices and especially the software that it produces and the networks that they are connected to really control a part of our lives. And that causes anxiety in a lot of people. Now, the exhibition really was designed in a multiple set of ways. One, there are these kind of moments, these kind of like straight streams where you are kind of confronted with a vast array of visual information, almost like cacophonic array of information, which is meant to kind of mimic that overwhelming potential of information overload in the what I call the post-digital age. I use the word post-digital because I believe that we are in a world where now everyone is digital. Uh, there are more than three billion people online now and in most developed societies everybody is somehow online. The next thing is that the exhibition also has these contours to it which are meant to mimic the imperfections of the internet. Now we think of the internet as this metaphor such as the cloud for example which is a false metaphor. The, the cloud is basically a series of fiber optic cables and servers that are in houses and buildings that consume energy. That's where your data is stored, not in some mythical cloud. Those spaces are not necessarily beautiful, they are imperfect. Technology, as we all know, doesn't work well. Anyone who has a Mac computer will know of what I call the beach ball of death, which is, you know, the circular loading ball when you're buffering or unable to get to the video or the piece of information that you want. The actual space is created as if you are in a labyrinth where you are somehow lost or forced to choose perspectives where you then become lost. The walls aren't straight, they're warped, they're imperfect, they have holes in them. They are different shades of gray. Sometimes the paint that's been chosen is silk, sometimes it's glossy. Sometimes you see a reflection and you think it's a photograph, but no, it's a reflection on the floor and we're playing with light and paint and so forth. So really the sense of the exhibition that we try to create as designers of this exhibition was to enable a sense of what it might feel to be immersed in the everyday anxieties of technology. But that does not mean that we didn't also choose to find moments of relief and laughter as well as I mentioned before. Coming up next, Dr. Ahmad takes us through some of the stunning works in this global exhibition and some of the surprising influences that have long been suppressed. Keep it here on Life Beats on Pulse95. Pulse95. 95. This is Life Beats. Life Beats. With Sally Musa. Sally Musa only on Pulse95. Welcome back to the home edition of Life Beats and my conversation with Dr. Omar Khlef as he takes us inside Sharjah Art Foundation's latest exhibition, Art in the Age of Anxiety, as well as highlighting the importance of women pioneers in the field. Let's talk about some of the works and some of the artists who are participating in this exhibition. And I love the way that the architecture is very much part of the exhibition itself with Todd Reese. 
the way that it guides you through this. So talk to us about some of the artworks and the artists who are part of this and what they're presenting. There are over 30 artists in the exhibition from all over the world and I wanted it to be a kind of panoptical view or response to this condition or this idea because except for some very, very small exhibitions that relate to technology in the region. This is really the first kind of major blockbuster show that seeks to attend to these discourses, and I wanted it to be truly global. One of the first things that you will encounter is a series of very odd sounds, and they take over the entire first half of Al Mureja Square, where the galleries are located at the Sharjah Art Foundation. And these sounds are part of a work by an artist called Lawrence Abu Hamdan. And it's a project called A Convention of Tiny Movements that actually we began together in 2015 and which was developed for this exhibition. And the idea behind this was that at the time of first making this, which I believe was in the autumn of 2014, Lawrence was at MIT and he discovered something called the visual microphone. The visual microphone basically determines or reveals that everyday objects, whether it be a cup, rose petal, a potato crisp packet, can actually surveil us. It actually records our voices. And what the visual microphone does is it takes back these vibrations from our voice and plays them back to us. Quality of that recording has obviously developed over time. What happens in the square is you hear a range of different sounds, from singing to whispering, and we're not entirely sure what these things are. These are the sounds of six different items, a rose petal, a tissue box, a packet of potato chips that Lawrence has used the visual microphone to recall sound from and created a sonic landscape. So immediately as you enter the show, as you approach it, you are immersed in this idea of anxiety. You're realizing that this bottle of water in front of me here could be documenting everything that I say, which is a very odd thing. And then you enter the first gallery and there is a photograph by the artist of a supermarket in Beirut, which is color-coded in different colors and gray. What the colored items denote are objects that can recall or capture the sound of your voice. And what the gray items are, are ones that cannot capture. So from the very beginning, you're kind of implicated into this idea of watch out. You've got a little secret you want to tell to your mom and keep it from your brother. Well, you know, in the future, very near future potentially, she might be able to be going around the house with a visual microphone and <laughs> capturing all that is being said at home. Um, and I see the work as very playful as much as being quite serious as well in terms of also, of course, potential of governments being able to surveil us as well. Um, and then as you move through the space, we see an incredible work by an artist, actually two works by an artist called Sao Fei, who's probably one of China's most preeminent artists. 
Now, Sao Fei was one of the first artists to use something called Second Life, which it would be wrong to call it a video game. Second Life is a virtual environment that really became, around the mid-noughties, a huge sensation where people basically can take on any number of identities and people generally just live and escape in that world. And that feels very relevant to today because so many people that I know are communicating or passing their time by playing multi-user video games at home with people around the world. And what Southay created was something called RMB City, which is the perfect city that was designed by using or invoking architects such as Rem Koolhaas, Norman Foster and others to create the perfect cityscape in Second Life. But she also made another work. So one is called RMB City in Second Life. And then the other is called People in Limbo, where she literally hired actors to pose in Second Life as Karl Marx and Adam Smith right after the financial crisis of 2008 to try and work together with the community of people in Second Life to solve the financial crisis. And this is interesting to me because at a moment like this, where we're all holed up in quarantine, we need to find alternative spaces to have conversation. Another interesting piece that I feel is very relevant to today is a work by an artist from Canada called Jeremy Bailey called The Nail Art Museum. And that piece, he conjures up a world using augmented reality where he imagines that the future of the museum will be on our fingertips. No longer will we have to visit museum or galleries, we will be able to have little plinths on our fingertips on there, you can just start to imagine, ooh, a Jeff Koons, an Ai Weiwei, oh, a Renaissance painting, or even a piece of art of your own. That is very much suggestive, actually, of the time that we live in, where we see a lot of galleries trying. And I say trying because I don't think anyone is doing it particularly successfully or in a very interesting way just yet to go online and create virtual showrooms and other kinds of ways of exploring or experiencing art. But Jeremy is talking about something much more sophisticated. He's talking about something that feels spatial and tactile, that uh, extends beyond just the flatness of the screen. The exhibition, of course, has you know so many kind of touchstones and key points. And one of those figures is the American artist Trevor Paglin, who in a variety of ways uses algorithms to try and decode the world around us. So for many years, he has been working with what he calls machine vision. I don't know if he coined that term of it or it existed before, but knowing Trevor very well and knowing that he is a great mind, he probably did coin the term, or he gleaned it from some incredible scientist that he's worked with. And machine vision is really about how machines see the world. So one of the things that are in the exhibition are a series of very large scale, beautiful photographs of clouds. And they have all of these strange, almost like star-shaped crisscross zags on them. 
constellations. They're like constellations and almost like a tapestry. It looks like a tapestry to me, like this digital it tapestry. Is. It is. It's a digital tapestry. That's a very beautiful way to put it. And it is these kind of constellations. And really what he did was he put the machine up at the cloud and said, look, machine, look at the metaphor of the cloud and let's deconstruct it. Because we all know the cloud does not exist as that metaphor. There is no bubble that holds our information. And as someone who's lost all my information from the cloud very recently, only about six months ago, I lost a manuscript for a new book that I was writing from the cloud and was deeply devastated because I was told the cloud was invincible and we should throw away external hard drives. You know, I very much relate to that idea that the cloud is not an invincible entity nor a good metaphor. He has this incredible piece called De Beauvoir, which I just absolutely love. Basically, Facebook has the most powerful facial recognition algorithm in the world. And the way he's explained it to me is that what Facebook does is it takes your face and it subtracts it from all the billions of faces on Facebook in the world and it identifies your unique profile. And that is then identified across all of Facebook's platforms, whether it be Instagram, which it owns, or WhatsApp, for example. And you exist, your face exists. And it's logged and archived there. So what he did is he created a series where he put different cultural historians who have now passed and tried to program and encode various pieces of information to create what Facebook would see as that person. So he programmed the face of Simone de Beauvoir as Facebook would see it through its algorithm. And although the image is not precise, it bears a very strong likeness to Simone de Beauvoir. And it's very spectral and ghostly. And the way that it's lit in this tiny little crevice, it emits these blue shadows across the floor and the walls. And for me, it's like this feminist figure from times past looking over us, telling us something maybe, but also it's very powerful to have Simone de Beauvoir. It was this feminist icon in an exhibition about technology, which predominantly was perceived as a field that was run by men. And many of the early artists were perceived to be men, but actually as history has revealed over time, many forerunners of computing technology actually were women. And Alexandra Domanovich, who's another artist in the show, for example, has uh, spoken very widely about how Serbian computer scientists were some of the leading figures to work with the computer, but are completely forgotten. Aura Satz, who's another artist in the exhibition, who has made an incredible interactive piece about the sound of sirens, which I would love to talk to you about, has also made a film about how women were instrumental in the birth of the computer. Having Simone de Beauvoir there is very poignant. The piece by Aura Satz I wanted to mention is... Hedy Lamarr this... as well. Sorry, I was going to say Hedy Lamarr. You know, she yes, pioneer in computers. Very few people know her role, you know, in all of this, in the internet, in everything that we're experiencing today. Yes, but not only her, but she's a name that was recognized by someone because not only of what she did, but also because of the scholarship around her work. There are so many people, so many women that were just almost like factory workers. 
right. who were told to go in there and make, write code, never told, no name recognized. Right. And that's just really, really quite shocking. And so the exhibition tries to be very much gender balanced in terms of its male to female ratio. Uh, however, generally speaking, having worked in this field, you know, my first job was actually as a curator. I was 23 years old and I was a curator at a place called the Foundation for Art and Creative Technology in Liverpool. And yes, 23 is an oddly young age to be a curator and department head. I started young and I've suffered my way through. At that center where we worked, we only showed men when I first started because the field has been dominated by men. There are these old entrenched labels like media art and new media, which I don't use particularly. Even video art was believed to be a male art, anything that engaged with technology. Although, you know, you had incredible figures from Charlotte Mormon to Dara Birnbaum to Lynn Hirschman Leeson, who was in this exhibition, who was a pioneer of interactive technology. She made the first ever interactive artwork in the 1980s. And she is now in her 70s and only now being recognized. But still, it's not like she has like some huge major gallery representation, that she's on the cover of all these newspapers. No, she's still in some way waiting for her big solo show moment. And I find it truly unbelievable. And I think the younger generation is more lucky and there is more awareness. Those older artists, for example, like Ulla Wiggin, who is now in her 80s, who was a pioneer of computer art as well, is not very well known either. And I've shown her work in exhibitions, but you know, where are the solo shows for these female artists contra the male artists? Coming up next, Omar Khlef takes us through the more humorous and joyful moments of the show, including a bit of karaoke. This is Life Beats. Life Beats. With Sally Musa. Sally Musa. Only on Pulse 95. Pulse 95. It's Life Beats, the home edition, and we're talking Shadow Art Foundation's ambitious new show, Art in the Age of Anxiety, curated by Omar Khlef. Here he takes us through the more joyful moments of the exhibition, including a little bit of karaoke. Is there no kind of positivity, you know, because a lot of people talk about the fact that the internet connectivity has actually had a lot of positives as well. So is there a balance in the show? How do you address that? Well, of course, you know, I wouldn't be doing what I do if I didn't believe that there was good in all of this. And I always say that I'm a digital centrist and to sometimes even uh, a digital utopian at times because for me, my career wouldn't exist without the internet and many of these artists couldn't have produced their work about the internet, everyday technologies, certain algorithms and so forth. So I believe that there is a great positive that technology enables. And when Sir Tim Berners-Lee, you know, released the World Wide Web in 1989, back then the primary mechanism by which to access the internet, I mean, the internet's genesis is really around the mid-60s as in its testing, but the internet is accessed through now predominantly our phones. 
through WhatsApp, through Facebook on our phones, etc., email. But Berners-Lee imagined it as this kind of open utopian platform for the freedom of information. He didn't necessarily ever imagine that it would be a space of monetization and corporatization or a space of potential surveillance or a space where information could be gathered or leaked or things could be sold back to you or that there would be paywalls for newspapers or information, but rather it was a free space. In a way, I guess maybe a good example is that he imagined the whole World Wide Web to be a kind of Wikipedia, a community that was making itself. But of course, it turned out to be something much greater than that. I hold still to some of those beliefs and I think the show does have moments of kind of pleasure and joy. For example, when you sit on John Rathman's Transdimensional Serpent and you go onto a virtual reality journey, you get to experience, you know, the sensational and fun potential of these technologies. If you see Antoine Catala's moving emojis, where he's literally taking something from the virtual world and making it into embodied, you know, moving emoticons, the humor and play in that is also quite wonderful. Joshua Nathanson, a lot of people, when they come and they see his paintings, they think that they are digital renderings, but actually they're not. He is a classically trained painter. What he does is he goes out into scenes and paints en plein air using his iPad. And then what he tries to do is go back into his studio and uses oil paints, acrylics, spray paints, to try and recreate the aesthetic of the digital and painting form. And what he's trying to do, like some of the other artists in the show, such as Oliver Larrick as well, and Alexander Demonovich, is to create a conversation between the digital and the physical. That's a celebration as opposed to a form of critique. There are moments of pleasure, aesthetic pleasure to be gleaned and gained, moments of solace and retreat. For example, Jenna Sutela's film made up through algorithms and it's an incredible majestic musical feast. It is a sensorial immersive experience. That is also a great thing to be enjoyed. And then, of course, I will not forget, as someone who loves to sing, one of my ways to pass the day is Thompson and Craighead's piece, More Songs of Innocence and Experience, which you will see as you approach the galleries from the outside. It's a karaoke machine that we lit up, feel like Korean karaoke bar. And basically, they have taken spam emails that they have received over the years and they have turned them into a Dickensian sort of fairy tale. And you are invited as a visitor to come and sing along. It's off key, it's off tune, doesn't matter because the whole thing is off key and off tune. But, you know, it's a moment of joy as well to show you that these things that actually are quite endemically scary about society, you know, people from third world countries trying to scam people into uh, believing certain things and these things being followed through with can actually be turned into a fairy tale or a space for you to enjoy yourself and come and sing along in the exhibition. Coming up, it's an exhibition all about art in the digital world, but with the coronavirus closing all physical galleries, 
Will Sharjah Art Foundation take the exhibition online? The answer may surprise you. That's next. You're listening to Pulse 95. 95. This is Life Beats. Life Beats. With Sally Musa. Sally Musa. Only on Pulse 95. Pulse 95. Welcome back to Life Beats on Pulse 95, the home edition. I'm speaking to Dr. Amur Khlef about the new Sharjah Art Foundation exhibition, Art in the Age of Anxiety. Now, this is an exhibition all about the digital world, but ironically, the current pandemic has closed the specially built physical gallery where the exhibition is housed. So, does that mean that the exhibition will go online? The answer just might surprise you. Well, it's a very good question and one that I think I personally and my colleagues have lots of kind of ethical questions about. One, so the exhibition was due to open the 21st of March. So now it's been, oh gosh, it's been too long. And uh, I have to say that I kind of am in a sense of deep mourning. And I know that in an age of incredible trauma in the world, it seems might seem trivial to say that, but it's not really to me because in a way this exhibition very much is about how we communicate with each other and how we find different ways to do so and how we find solace, peace and awareness and how we do that. So much work went into it and it actually came off the heels of another exhibition that I had organized in London called To Speak With Many Tongues, which was an exhibition that I'd curated of our collection only three weeks prior, which was meant to open, which also got postponed potentially indefinitely, which I totally respected in that case as well. In this case, with two back-to-back exhibitions postponed and then now also potentially what I was planning in the summer, which was also to reveal even more magisterial gems from Sharjah Art Foundation's collection also potentially going to be postponed. You go into a kind of mourning as someone who is working so hard to realize stuff. And then you people ask you, why don't you just put it online? Well, first of all, it's not that simple. Although an exhibition is about the internet, doesn't mean that it is made to go online because some things are spatialized, they're sculptural, etc. Things have been designed in particular ways over years. And the idea is that it's meant to be experiential. So we've been questioning, what do we do? Do we do virtual tours? And we've looked at virtual tours and we haven't found them particularly enticing in terms of giving you a sense of the real experience. Even the biggest institutions that are the most moneyed, whether it's an art fair or a gallery, maybe you want to buy that art or want to see that art. It's just JPEGs on a wall that look like a SketchUp model. That's not what I want the legacy of this exhibition to be. And I don't think what anyone wants it to be. So what we're considering now is a multi-pronged approach to how we reveal this exhibition to the public. The first step is that we are producing a major publication and that is something very special. We were fortunate enough a day before the lockdown, we found out that it was going to happen and we sent in a photographer who we had chosen to work with to basically document everything 
there were still some final touches to be done, but to document everything. And he was there for, I don't know, 18 hours or something, documenting it. And it was, we managed to get a really imaginative snapshot of the show, which will anchor this publication. We had already commissioned a range of very interesting authors and historians on the subject. Uh, more broadly, from you know, Heather Dewey Hagberg, who talks about genetics, who's based at NYU Abu Dhabi, to Aruba Khaled, who's at the Future Foundation in Dubai, to people like Douglas Copeland, who wrote Generation X, whose article actually is going to preview in the Financial Times Weekend edition, to people like W.J.T. Mitchell, who basically is the godfather of writing about image culture. And they have all written texts about the show in the context of the current condition, which feels very prescient. And there are reproductions of all of the artworks in that book, and that book will be distributed internationally. So that's the first thing that we're working to complete and that we're hoping to have that out by May. We are also launching from this weekend a social media campaign that will start to reveal different images from the exhibition that are really trying to give you an evocative sense of the show. And this weekend can be any weekend, by the way. Follow us if you don't, Sharja Art on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, whichever platform you want to choose, there'll be images there. And then we're talking to the artist really and trying to figure out with them, what is the best way? Do you want a virtual tour or do you want to put your work online, such as your videos? So we're exploring that with them. So potentially putting certain works online, but really I'm trying to make it a collaboration of the artists. And I feel like as a foundation, we are very much artist-centered in terms of trying to never undermine the work of the artist. We basically want to do what's best for them and what supports their practice, but also represents the context of the work within this exhibition. If there is a potential that the exhibition may be extended, should we go into a period whereby we go back to normal in the near future, and of course, normal inverted commas, because there will be a new normal after this exhibition. And as we all know, there is no such thing as normal anyway. That is something that we are also uh, discussing and debating, is the extension of loans and, and things to enable a public to see it. But still, it will not be the same. We are also doing some short video documentation that will go on social media, which unfortunately we haven't been able to do due to some of our staff members being based in Dubai and we being based in Sharjah and uh, the lockdown in Dubai at this moment. But of course, we respect every rule that is put in place for our health and safety. And we continue to work with health authorities in the hope that we will actually hopefully maybe be able to open the exhibition to the public but we all know that the public will not be moving in the same way i for one my view of the world outside has changed these last few weeks i mean the obsessive use of hand sanitizer 
the obsessive hand washing. I literally developed some kind of allergy from one of them <laughs> uh, because the amount of use. It's a different world that we're entering. We're trying to collaborate with people to think about how to share this narrative at least. And I'm very happy that a publication is happening in physical form. Um, we're also going to be putting the guidebook in English and Arabic online soon, which has further information about the show as well as information about each artwork and images freely available as a PDF on the exhibition page. So we're really trying. Also, it takes time because it's not like you have all that infrastructure ready to go in place when you've put all your infrastructure and resources into building something physical to then suddenly, oh, there's a global pandemic, throw everything online, when you were very adamant that this had to be a very physical experience. Those are things that frustrate me also about the notion of digitality and, and, and whatnot, is that there are multiple ways to experience it. And as a historian of the subject, it's really important to think about how the digital is embedded in everything we do, whether it's the candle that I'm looking at right now, the way that it was designed and shaped in a computer, its logo, whether it's the flowers that are in front of me that were ordered from an app because, of course, I couldn't go out to a store at a particular point and so forth. And so the digital has enraptured us in a way that is also for the good. And without the digital, I think, the current lockdown or self-quarantining that has taken place would be almost unbearable. So I'm very much grateful for all the people who are continuing to run their businesses online in the UAE during this time. And also to things like the UAE government launching, for example, mental health initiatives where they're doing talks online. I'm grateful to people who are doing meditation together online, to the therapists who are doing online sessions, and many whom are doing it for free, knowing that people are struggling during this time, which is not an easy one for everyone. If nothing else, this pandemic helps us to realize how much we take for granted every day, an exhibition like this that we would just normally visit the insight that you've just given us into what it takes to put it all together and what it takes now to try and still bring it to people. That's huge. And I hope that we really appreciate more what that means. I don't think we should ever belittle when you say I'm mourning this time. Absolutely. I think a lot of people are mourning, you know, what they do, how they create life every day and how that's been upturned. But truly, Dr. Omar, really, you're like an ocean of insight. I don't think it's going to be our last conversation, if that's okay with you. I hope not. I hope not. Thank you so much. Thank you Take so care. much. That's Dr. Omar Khalif, Sharjah Art Foundation's Director of Collections and Senior Curator, and the man behind this exhibition. I will definitely be off to see art in the age of anxiety once things, inshallah, start opening back up again. I cannot wait. This is Pulse 95. Tune in live every weekday from 10 a.m.